Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you enjoy the Bumps and Thumps podcast. In order to continue to get the guests on and improve our podcast, we need support from listeners like you. That financial support helps us continue to do the podcast and get guests on that we normally would not be able to get on the show. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N and the number three after and click on the support button. There will be options there for you to make a monthly contribution. With your contribution, we can continue to conduct the podcast and ask more well-known wrestlers from the past and present that require financial compensation to be on the podcast. Again, please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N and the number three and click on the support button. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you for joining another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm your host, Brian Ferguson. My guest today is a true legend and trailblazer in weightlifting and pro wrestling. He was a gold medalist in the 1971 Pan Am Games, competed in the 1972 Munich Games, and he started in pro wrestling by completing Vern Gagne's grueling wrestling camp with the famous class of 1972 that included Ric Flair, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, and the Iron Sheik. He wrestled in all major territories and won titles in many of them, he is a former WWF Intercontinental Champion, a two-time AWA World Tag Team Champion, and a two-time Mid-Atlantic Champion, just to name a few. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you the world's strongest man, Ken Patera. Ken, thanks for joining our, our show and taking time out of your busy schedule today. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. I listen well, thank to, you, sir. Uh, I listened to one of your uh, interviews with Greg Gagne about a week ago. I don't know when it was recorded. I think it was a year ago that it was recorded, but I, I enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, a little bit, uh, let's talk about uh, you growing up. Uh, grew up in Oregon. Can we talk a little bit about uh, your childhood, your schooling, things like that? Well, I'll talk to you about anything. Well, wonderful. Let's talk about your childhood, how you grew up in Oregon, what your family life was like. Well, I had uh, four brothers and one sister. And, of course, I had mom and dad. Yeah. And uh, grandma and grandpa. And, uh, <laughs> God, I had uh, eight aunts and one uncle. Wow. And uh, but we had a big extended family. And... Uh, mm. My, uh, I don't know how many cousins I had, tell you the truth, Brian. Uh, yeah. I would just hear to say, yeah, back in those days, back in the early 40s, mid 40s, everybody had, uh, you know, five to 10 kids. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I had about 25 uh, cousins. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And we used to, and my mom and dad, uh, they'd have these huge 
Sunday dinners at one o'clock every Sunday. Yeah. Right right after church. Yep. And all the aunts and uncles would show up. And uh, we had a huge dining room table mm -hmm. uh, in the dining room right off the kitchen. Yeah. And uh, they'd, st uh, they'd stick all the little kids into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, God, the, 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 you know, not all of them showed up every Sunday, but right. I bet 10 to 15 kids and all the aunts and uncles and mom and dad. And, uh, wow. For some reason, they always put me in the dining room. <laughs> you know, it, 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 even when I was one, two year old, I, I was, you know, 1943, 44. Yeah, and then when I got to be, you know, uh, three, four, five years old, I was actually sitting at the big table. You, you became the big kid then. Well, yeah, I think my uh, mom wanted to keep an eye on me. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you the youngest? No, I'm the second to the youngest. We have uh, Jack. Uh, he was. Uh, three-time All-American at the University of Oregon, and then he played eight or nine years in the NFL, and then he uh, became a pretty famous uh, defensive coach mm -hmm. with uh, the L.A. Rams and then the New York Giants. And then uh, his third uh, assignment was with Bud Grant here in Minnesota with the Minnesota Vikings. And yeah. then uh, in 76, he was hired as the first head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he uh, he got around. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he, when you're good, you get hired places, right? Yeah, exactly. When uh, in 1960, when the Dallas Cowboys were an expansion uh, expansion franchise, along with the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, mm -hmm. my brother was uh, hired by the Dallas Cowboys as a middle linebacker and uh, defensive uh, captain. Oh wow! Yeah, so he was uh, he was pretty good. Then he blew his knee out <sighs> uh, after the fourth or fifth game. And back in those days, almost any kind of knee injury was uh, the end of your career. Yeah. And now they patch you up, and you're back on the field within you know six months or less. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was, that's when he went into coaching. He was the youngest coach in the NFL when he started. I think he was 28 or 29. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Let's, uh, your college career, you went to BYU. Yeah. Correct. Let's talk a little bit about that. You were a shot put, weightlifter. Uh, I know you got some, uh, recognition while you were in college oh yeah i got a lot of recognition i was uh two-time all-american uh in uh weightlifting and uh track and field yeah and uh 
you know, I competed in all the national AEU uh, <clears throat> championships every summer. And, um, I uh, won the indoor uh, NCAA uh, shot put championship in, I think that was in 67. Okay. Yeah, it might have been 66, 67, something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't think it makes that much difference. But anyway, uh, yeah, I had quite a quite a uh, collegiate career, as a matter of fact. Yeah. When you went to the Olympics in '72, and you know that situation with the the what was that like? You know, with the hostages. I mean, you guys were kind of locked down, I believe. I mean, I was just. I mean, I was not even two years old. So can you kind of discuss, talk about that? How, what was that like for you over there? Well, when when we left uh, the States to fly over to Munich, Germany, mm-hmm. everything was, you know, happy-go-lucky. You know, everybody mm-hmm. was glad to be going to the Olympics, mm-hmm. you know, and all the different. It didn't matter if it was swimming, volleyball, track and field. Uh, weightlifting, boxing, wrestling, you know, whatever your sport was. And yeah. so uh, we all land in, uh, in Munich, Germany. And uh, we had the opening day ceremony in the big stadium. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a gorgeous stadium. And yeah. uh, everybody's going crazy, you know, and, uh, so we get back to the uh, Olympic Village, and uh, mm-hmm. we get settled in the best we could. And uh, then I was supposed to compete September 5th, mm-hmm. 1972. Mm-hmm. Well, that's when the Reg had terrorists uh, came uh over the back fence of the Olympic village Mm -hmm. and the Olympic uh, compound for the Jewish team was right next to that fence. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why, but the Jewish uh, Federation, they were complaining about the security being too tight and that the German Gestapo's ought to loosen up on their security. Well, the, the, yeah. the Germans, they didn't let up on their security. As a matter of fact, they tightened it up more because they knew yeah. something was up. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, even with that response, the terrorists, for some somehow they got the uh, lighting uh, on the big poles to go out. So now... Hmm. Everything around the uh, uh, Jewish compound was dark. Yeah. And I, I was right across from the Jewish uh, compound about 300 feet. Oh, yeah, wow. But my, our uh, apartment building was about seven or eight stories high. And I think we were on the sixth floor. So, I mean, I, I had a bird's eye view right into the uh Jewish compound. I could see everything. Wow. And uh, about six in the morning, uh, 
one of the other weightlifters turns the TV on and uh, they said, geez, what the hell's going on there? And uh, so it was, it was being televised back here to the States. Oh, yeah. wow. And so they uh, they woke me up. I think, well, I think I was already awake. Anyway, they brought my attention to what was going on in the Jewish compound. I looked out the window and it was already daylight and I could see these terrorists running around on the balconies of the Jewish compound. Yeah. And they all had these black uh, uh, ski masks uh, pulled down over their head. And they were all carrying oh, automatic great. weapons and I said, holy shit, that's right across the street. Yeah, right. I, I, I was right there. And uh, wow. next thing I know, helicopters started to land in the meeting area out in the plaza. And uh, yeah. some trucks and half tracks uh, from the military started rolling in there. And uh, even as it was televised live, in Munich and all around the world, we, mm -hmm. we still didn't understand what was going on. Right. But then it became real clear when we started hearing the gunshots. And wow. yeah, and so the the German military and police they had the uh, compound, uh, you know, totally uh, uh, surrounded. And yeah. uh, Arafat and uh, his uh, happy band of uh, terrorists were making making all kinds of demands. And that yeah. thing, I think it went on till about noon or one o'clock. Mm -hmm. And there had to be 150 uh, soldiers uh, in the half tracks. I don't know, God, there's 10 or 12, 15 of them, whatever. Yeah. And they totally surround the compound there, and then they were all parked in the in the courtyard down below us. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then the firing really picked up. I mean, there was machine gun fire, automatic weapon fire going off for about 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, the uh, terrorists... They came out with the white flag. Well, that was a phony white flag. They didn't. They had no intentions in uh, surrendering. What they wanted, uh, as as we found out later, they wanted a couple of helicopters to fly them uh, back to the airport mm -hmm. because they had a or no, they didn't have a plane. They were going to hijack a plane. So they wanted. Uh, uh, transportation out to the airport helicopter. So what they did, uh, they I don't know how many helicopters there were actually. There was two for sure. Uh -huh. Anyway, they they got the Jewish uh, team uh, members in there. I think there was ten or twelve of them, but they had already killed three or four of them uh -huh. and just left them in the compound there. So they get to the airport, 
and they were making all kinds of demands, you know, and they, they, they had uh, uh, the Jewish uh, athletes, and I think a couple coaches too, Mm-hmm. They had them hogtied and uh, with blindfolds on. So when the helicopters landed at the airport, the German uh, military had snipers set up on the tarmac. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many snipers there were, half a dozen or more. And they were laying down, and it was, you know, by that time, I think it was getting dark. Yeah. It was later in the day. So, they uh, um, they uh, the terrorists they get out of the helicopter. Well, when they got out of the helicopter, those snipers started picking them off, just boom, 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 dropping them dead. Yeah. Well, there was one that had a couple incendiary grenades. Those are. Uh-huh you know, grenades that go off and then create a horrific fire. Yeah. They throw those grenades inside the helicopter where the Jewish athletes still were. It just fried them. Oh. Just killed them instantly. Oh. And uh, then, you know, we heard all that, of course, you know. Yeah. So I was with some friends there at the Olympic Village, some... Uh, before I went to the Olympic, well, I, I went as a weightlifter, but I was actually a shot putter and discus thrower prior to that, but mm. for the 68 Olympics. Oh, wow. So uh, I had a lot of friends on the track and field team. So uh, those guys were rooming one floor down from us. Mm-hmm. So I went down the elevator and uh, I saw, uh, you know, four or five of my shot putting buddies and discus throwers. I said, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're going to go downtown. I said, you know, that's a good idea. Now, I was supposed to be competing that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Well, everything was canceled. Yeah. And they said, uh, no more Olympics. 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock in the afternoon, they said, uh, yeah, we're having a big meeting. All the nations are together, and we're going to call the Olympics off. And I said, well, shit, that's good. You know, I trained for almost four years. Yeah. And uh, for this day, you know, you only get one chance at it every four years. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I says, yeah, let's go downtown. So we jumped on the subway. The subway was right below the Olympic Village, brand, brand new subway, beautiful. Oh. So we all go down, there's about eight of us, we go, go downtown Munich, <clears throat> and uh, we go to this little restaurant that was rec- highly recommended. Uh-huh. I said, you go in there and get a two-pound ham hock, you get big sausages, uh, Wiener schnitzel, mashed potatoes, sauerkraut, whatever you want. So I, I'm, we we got this restaurant, and there was one table left. It was a big table, say ten people uh-huh. to sit at it. So we we pull up to that table, and they had what they called a uh, uh, a meat platter. 
And on that meat platter, you get that big ham hock, you get a big sausage, you get a big uh, uh, hunk of bacon, mashed potatoes, uh, sauerkraut. Oh, man, it was unbelievable. I ate that whole damn thing. <laughs> I didn't need any help, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we are drinking those big steins of beer. Yeah. Because... Uh, <laughs> Oktoberfest was starting in uh, like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. And Oktoberfest in Germany is, uh, you know, paramount. Everybody goes to Oktoberfest. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I don't know how many, we were all drinking. They said, well, why not? The right. Olympics have been canceled. So we get all, we stuff ourselves we get all drunk up we're drinking uh 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 what were we drinking i don't know some kind of liqueur rupplements ah. rupplement uh liqueur i must add 10 or 12 of those and a dozen beers <laughs> wow. and we all stumbled back to the subway station got back to the olympic village well, I don't know, three, four in the morning, I guess it was. Yeah. And uh, one of our handlers, uh, Rudy, Rudy Sablo from New York. Rudy comes into my room at 7.30 in the morning and says, Ken, you got to get up. You got to get up. I said, Rudy, get out of my room. No, no, you got to get up the Olympics. Uh, they reinstated them uh, about an hour ago. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. We got to go way in. Well, the way in is two hours away by bus. <laughs> because we have to go all the way back to the uh, area where we're competing. Mm. And no, two and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm busting here. My head is just pounding. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we get over there. I get weighed in. And well, by now, it's like noon. Yeah. And I'm starving. I haven't eaten since, you know, dinner the night before midnight. I said, Rudy, where's a snack bar around here? And ah, everything's closed. I said, Jesus. <laughs> so we found some potato chips and a couple hot dogs. And so I, I that 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 that's what uh, you get for being on the Olympic team. They didn't feed you too good back then, did they? Well, you know, be, yeah, the schedule kind of got screwed up. Yeah, yeah. Wow, so I said, yeah, so I said, hell, I don't want to stay over here all day, but uh, when do we have to be back here? He says, well, uh, six o'clock tonight. Mm -hmm. So I says, well, let's go jump on the bus and go back. I'm not, I want to lay down for a couple hours, Yeah, which is an ideal, you know. Yeah. I had no choice. I was so hungover. <laughs> So we get back to the Olympic Village. I take a nap for about two, yeah, about two hours. 
Well, then I had to get up again because it's another two and a half hour drive back to the uh, where we were competing. Yeah. So I mean, the whole thing is a mess. <laughs> and uh, and but on top of that, I had a real bad knee injury about nine months prior to that, and I had my knee operated on, mm. and it it always swelled up. You know, I did. Ridiculous knee injury. Yeah. So anyway, uh, about four days before the competition, I twisted my knee. I'm uh, doing some uh, warm up lifts uh, in the weightlifting hall, yeah. and uh, there are so many teams that we're only allowed a certain amount of minutes. Okay. Not hours, minutes. Minutes. To, to get a workout routine in. Yeah. And so between the knee injury and being hung over, I says, yeah, yeah, it is what it is. So um, I couldn't uh, keep the swelling down in my knee. And the, the Carl Faith was the trainer. Mm-hmm. I said, Carl, what, what are we going to do about my knee? And he said, well, so there's not a lot we can do about it. We can we can freeze it. They had these uh, cans of uh, uh, well, I can't remember what it was called, but they they spray it on your knee, mm-hmm. and it was I mean it was colder than hell. It was cold. Yeah. And uh, so he did that two three times and put a heavy wrap on it and. Uh, because the swollen so bad, he thought that by you know putting the heavy wrap on real tight would probably help. But well, it didn't help. It made it worse. <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> it was on so tight I couldn't even do a squat. Well, if you can't do a squat while you're doing Olympic lifts, you're not going to be able to lift. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, uh, here here comes you know. About an hour later, uh, the competition starts. We've already weighed in in the morning. And uh, so we get uh, uh, out on the weightlifting platform. After I'm warmed up and stuff, I do my first attempt. You get three attempts at each lift. Uh Back in those days, you had the military press, three lifts. You had the two-hand snatch, three lifts. Mm-hmm. Clean and jerk, three lifts. Okay. So, um, you had to be, you know, you, you can't be out there with a bad knee doing all that heavy lifting. Right. Because, you know, we're talking 500 pounds and stuff, you know, that you have to do pull off the platform and jump under and then stand up and uh, put it over your head. And so anyway, uh, the press went all right. I think I was in second or third place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have been in first place, <laughs> but as it was, it wasn't. Yeah. And so then after the uh, press uh, segment was over, then you warm up and and do the snatch. I told Carl, the trainer, I said, Carl, this 
this wrap is so tight. I said, I'm not going to be able to do snatches with this thing. So he took the wrap off. Well, he took that wrap off and my knee swelled up the size of a football. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, in, in like two minutes. Oh, gosh. And uh, I said, Carl, do you have a syringe? He says, no. I said, my well, shit. <laughs> he said, what do you want a syringe for? I said, to drain this fluid off my knee. Yeah. And he said, nah. So anyway, I warm up for the snatch, and I go out there, and I, I made the mistake of doing a regular snatch uh -huh. where you pull the weight off the platform, jump under it, and then you hit a full bottom position in a squat. Uh -huh. Well, I couldn't do that. And I dropped all three uh, snatches behind me. I had uh -huh. no flexibility. I didn't have enough flexibility to so anyway, I'm not blaming it on the night before the drinking and the yeah carousing around because I'd done that a thousand times. So I I couldn't use that as an excuse. I wouldn't eat anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my knee just never recovered. Well, and, uh, yeah, the year before we were in Cali, Colombia for the Pan American Games, mm -hmm. which is the uh, Western Hemisphere. Uh, like uh, Olympic Games, uh -huh. same thing, same same competition, everything. But anyway, in, in the year before in '71, I won all four gold medals. Yeah, the the uh, military press, the snatch, a clean and jerk, and then you get a gold medal for the overall. And because they take all all three of your best lifts, yeah, combine them for a total. Okay. And so I set, uh, I think I set all Pan American game records. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah, I, yeah. I read. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's... I was I was on a good roll. So I going in the Olympics the next year. Uh, uh, I was one of the favorites along with Vasily Alexiev mm -hmm. from Russia, and uh, unfortunately, he didn't have any injuries. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't have any knee injuries. Where I had a bad knee injury with a you know heck of an operation just nine months prior to the Olympics and then the damn thing just kept acting up. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's too that's too bad. I'm just, I know you would have done well if it wasn't for that knee injury. That's that's unfortunate. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Well, well that's very interesting. I uh Got a little more insight. That, that's that's great. Let's, uh, you know, I've been told that Vern Gagne had, had sponsored you uh, during your time at the at the Olympics, and then yeah. he uh, recruited you to go into his wrestling camp. What? And uh, you know, you got a pretty well known class that you went through with. What was that like for you going well, into that camp? I mean, doing it with with that, that group of people. Yeah, well, when I got back from the Pan American Games, Ric Flair and I were renting a house uh -huh. in South Minneapolis at the time. Not the most desirable neighborhood. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, didn't, we really didn't have any problems down there. So yeah. anyway, 
Um, Rick grew up in Minneapolis. I'm from Portland, Oregon. A lot of people think I'm from Minnesota, but I'm not. Right. I am now. I've lived here most um, of my adult life. Okay. Well, I'm almost 78, and I moved back here when I was 25. Yeah, I'd say so you lived there a while. More than 50 years, so yeah. I can call myself a Minnesotan now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, Ric Flair and Jesse the Body Ventura and yeah. Nick Boxwinkle and all, all the other guys. But anyway, we uh, uh, started training camp a couple of weeks after I got back from Munich. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about Greg Gagne and I going to Czechoslovakia? No. no. Let's hear it. Okay. So anyway, after after the Olympic Games, after my competition was all over, uh-huh. uh, I had an option of uh, flying back to uh, Minnesota or staying over there in Europe for, uh, oh, like, 10 days. Okay. So I was talking to a, uh, Vern Gagne's son, uh, Greg Gagne. Uh-huh. Uh, Vern, Vern Gagne brought his whole family, brought his wife and his two daughters and his son. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it was a Kathy and Donna. Uh-huh. The, he had a third daughter there too, uh, Elizabeth, but she didn't want to go. So anyway, uh, we, uh, I said, Greg, you want to go over to uh, Austria and Czechoslovakia and some of those places? Yeah. I said, okay. So uh, we jumped on a train uh, after about two days. Yeah, it was two days. And uh, we uh, went over to Vienna, Austria, and uh, got a hotel room. And uh, it was a gorgeous hotel. Jesus, you know those old, old style mansions. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, we stayed in uh, Vienna for two days, and so uh, uh, Greg wanted to go see those big white horses. Oh yeah. You know that. Dance and prance. I can't remember the names of them. God, they're huge. They're like 2,000 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. But anyway, their stable was two blocks away. Huh. But right damn near in downtown uh, Vienna. Okay. So we went over there. The place was empty while they were out on tour somewhere. Huh. So there was no horses. There's a couple people, you know, like groundskeepers or whatever. And so I talked to them. I said, well, uh, how long are they going to be gone? All of them be gone for a month. Oh, no. Yeah. So I says, uh, yeah, okay, that's fine, you know. And uh, so on the way back to the hotel, uh, we come across uh, this restaurant with a wine cellar. And it was like, like a, oh, you know, half of it was outside, half of it was inside, right off the sidewalk. Uh-huh. So we went down about five steps, and they, they had, they must have had 500 different kinds of wine. 
Oh, wow. And, and bottles. I'm not kidding. This thing was like 100, 200 feet long. Wow. And it was like a big buffet of wine. And so there was a couple of girls there uh, of all places from Oregon. And oh. I'm, I'm from Oregon. <laughs> so uh, we started talking to the girls. And I said, why are you here? They said, well, we were... Uh, um, uh, they were in some kind of a social group that uh, worked in uh, summer camps. Oh. And, and they had their choice of going anywhere in the world. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I didn't know those some places even existed, but they do. Yeah. So they were over there. You know, they, they made like 50 cents an hour. Oh, geez. They had free, free room and board, and they were there for like three months. Okay. And so after three, you know, they didn't cost them anything. They were making 50 cents an hour. And back in those days, that's like five bucks an hour now. Yeah. So they were able to save up quite a bit of money. And uh, they were in this, uh, uh, well, they were sitting at a table outside. It was a gorgeous day. Mm -hmm. So I said, you girls drink wine? Oh, yeah, you know how girls are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, they were probably about 19, I think 19 and 20. Okay. And uh, I think Greg at that time was probably about 20, 22, 23, and I, I was 27. So, mm -hmm. uh, so basically the same age bracket. Yeah. And uh, so we start. Uh, tasting all these fantastic wines <laughs> and we of course we got a big meal too yeah <laughs> man did we get plowed <laughs> <laughs> we were there for like three hours drinking wine <sighs> and our hotel was just about a block away uh -huh. and so we invited the girls to come over to our hotel and they said oh yeah I said, do you guys have any place to stay? No. I said, well, <laughs> I said, you know, and, and their uh, uh, train didn't leave uh, Vienna until the next morning. I said, well, come over and stay with us. So yeah. they did. Ah, all right. So the party was on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we had a heck, heck of a time. And... Uh, uh, in the bathroom, they had a toilet, and then they had this other thing that looked kind of like a toilet, uh -huh. but it was a bodet, ah. where you <laughs> squat over, push the button, it cleans your bottom. <laughs> so Greg doesn't know what it is. I said, Greg, don't go to the bathroom in that. And so I explained to him what, what it was for. Oh, okay. Yeah, he said, I've heard of those. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, that hotel room it had a huge bathroom shower. Uh, it was a, uh, like a walk-in shower down there. It was about six by six. Wow. And yeah, it was a big bathroom. Yeah. It was like a two-room two bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, well, we paid we paid seventy five bucks a night for that room. Oh well, that's expensive fact, back then. Case, that that's two thousand a night now. 
Yeah, that's expensive back then. I mean, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous hotel. Yeah. And uh, we didn't want to spend that much money, but that's the only room that we could get in the whole town. We didn't get over there until about 7 o'clock at night. Yeah. When we originally came in from uh, Munich. So then the next day, we had to catch the train over to uh, Bratislava, Czechoslovakia. And that's in the southern portion of uh, Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to Czechoslovakia because my dad was born up by Prague. Oh. Know, but that, that's 650 miles to the north okay. of where we were. So I, I asked the, uh, the, the, that's like a two-day train ride. Well, we didn't have that much time. Right. I said, how, how much would it cost to fly up there? And uh, the guy that knew, you know, he says, well, you're, you're probably looking at six, $700. Oof. And now I don't have enough money. Right. So we didn't get up to uh, Prague. And so we stay, stayed in uh, Bratislava. And I, I had met a girl over in Munich uh, about two weeks prior to that. She, mm-hmm. <clears throat> this girl, I'm not lying. She looked just like Sophia Loren. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she worked for the TV studio uh-huh. uh, during the Olympics. And she was absolutely gorgeous, really bright. Spoke six, seven different languages. Oh, and, wow. Uh, everybody over in that part of Europe, you know, they all speak six, seven languages. Yeah. You know, Andre the Giant spoke six languages, I think. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I, Andre was a very bright guy. Yeah. Nice guy, too. Yeah. If, if he liked you, he was nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because there were so many jerk-offs that, you know. Yeah. No, man, I'll tell you. <laughs> it, you know, everybody has a little man's complex when they come up against somebody that's much larger than they. Yeah. And uh, there were so many... Uh, jerks, you know, that I, I call it the six beer uh, enhancement program. <laughs> they get six beers in them, they think they can whip anybody. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I've had that situation a thousand times myself, but I'm yeah. really, uh, yeah, that, that, that there are so many little midgets uh everybody <laughs> everybody was a midget you know next to andre was, right yeah. you know, seven four 450 pounds yeah he's and, a big dude yeah very big yeah and uh and he wasn't afraid to get in a fight oh <laughs> uh, i wonder why <laughs> yeah. he was tough yeah he knew how to fight yeah you know so. yeah yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, we're over there in Bratislava for three days, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And this girl, this beautiful girl, she showed, she's always, every day, she's dressed up. She's got a blazer and a skirt and nice shoes and a fancy hat. They all, gorgeous women over in Europe at that time. Back in the early 70s, they all wore hats. Mm-hmm. So she took us down the Blue Danube. And uh, I think Linda Ronstead 
sang a song, the Blue, the, yeah, the Blue Danube. Uh-huh. It was a gorgeous song. It's all yeah. about this beautiful river and everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we get on this boat, and uh, Greg and I and this girl, and we're, God, I, for the life of me, I can't remember her name. It wasn't Sophia, but she just <laughs> looked like Sophia. Yeah. But anyway, we're going down the Blue Danube. And I asked her, I, I said, isn't this river supposed to be blue? <laughs> she says, why? I says, it's a mud hole. <laughs> I said, it, this river is filthy. He said, that's because all the countries up, uh, up the river, I mean, that river ran through about seven or eight different countries. Uh. And so uh, I think it originated in the Alps. Okay. So anyway, uh, yeah, it, it, it wasn't blue. <laughs> <laughs> she really got offended at me. I thought she was going to kiss me. <laughs> But she didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she knew I was kidding. I, yeah. Well, I think she did. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that was interesting. We went about two, three miles down river, and then we got off, and uh, uh, I think we took, yeah, we took a, a trolley mm-hmm. back up to where we, we were staying, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, that was, that was very interesting. That then we went. She showed us some old castles. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, that were way up on the uh, mountain, uh, overlooking the city and stuff. Very, you know, those castles were built back in like 12th, 13th century. Yeah. So I mean, they they were old, but they were gorgeous. God, yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, at that time, Europe was basically coming out of a recession. Oh, okay. You know, and, and communism. Uh, the Czechoslovakia had been un- under Russia rule for mm-hmm. quite a number of years. Yeah. At that time, and uh, they finally ran the Russians out of there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, because, you know, Czechoslovakia has always been a cap- capitalist country. Yeah. And uh, when the Russians came in, you know, with their tanks and their military and their army and everything, it's, they shut everything down. Right. You know, just people yeah. didn't like the Ruskies. They hated <laughs> the Russians. They loved the Americans. I mean, everywhere Greg and I would walk around that place, you know, yeah. Uh, people come up to us, you know, and tell us how much they appreciate the Americans and everything. Oh, that's that's and, nice. Yeah. Then they'd always say, "We hate the Russians." <laughs> I, said, I know you do <laughs> for good reason. Yeah. You know, they right. come in here, occupy your country, and take all the resources and everything, and don't. All they do is leave. It. When they leave, everything's broken. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but anyway, uh, we got, so we went, we had to go back to um, uh, Munich. So when we left Bratislava, we stopped one one more day in uh, Vienna. Mm -hmm. 
and went to a um, casino there. Oh. Like a casino royale. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Vienna, Austria is a very, very wealthy city. Very oh. wealthy. A lot of money there. <laughs> and uh, there's two American guys walking around, tapped out, broke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Walk around. By this time, our clothes were getting a little stingy. <laughs> but anyway, we went to this casino and had a good time. And then uh, we got back to Munich. And I wasn't aware that if I didn't fly back with the American team, uh-huh. I was on my own as far as the airfare. Oh. Yeah. So... We get back, I called the airport or airlines, whatever, the Olympic Committee, whatever. Oh, Mr. Pateri, your flight left yesterday. Oh, and no. You were supposed to be on it. And the girl says, you're on your own now. I said, I don't have any money. <laughs> well, you have to figure out how to do it. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. I had like 200 bucks. Yeah, I think I had $200, and the flight was uh, almost $300, I believe it was. So luckily, Ah. Greg Gagne, he had a few extra bucks on him, so we made it work. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so we we flew out of uh, uh, Munich uh, that next day, and uh, we we had, you know, from Munich to Minneapolis, but we had one stop in Chicago. Okay. So I had all my uh, my clothes and everything in one huge suitcase. Uh-huh. Well, the suitcase never showed up in Minneapolis. Oh, no. Five, it, 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 it had a nice trip. It went down to Italy and Spain. Oh. And then it went uh, up to Ireland because I could see the baggage tags on yeah, and I finally did get it. So, like five days, uh, I finally uh, got to Minneapolis, and then, and then they called me. Yeah, well, I was staying over at Greg's house. So what? I said, "Well, I don't have a vehicle. We can bring it out." So <laughs> uh, thank God, Northwest uh, Airlines they they brought my luggage out to uh, Vern's house. Yeah. And I think Greg and I were staying there for three, four days. Five, about five. No, that'd be longer than that. Yeah. Took five days for the luggage to get there. We must have been there about 10 days. Wow. Yeah. And and Vern and his family, they went down to Italy, uh, sightseeing down there. Okay. So uh, anyway, they they get down there. They went to this this real famous resort, Big Lake and everything. Mm-hmm. They get there, the lake was closed. Oh no! Yeah, because the pollution. It was so polluted that they couldn't let anybody in. You know, they could stay in the motels and stuff, but they weren't allowed to go in the lake. Oh wow! That's... <laughs> <laughs> you can look at it. <laughs> yeah, Vern was pissed. <laughs> I bet. Oh yeah, gosh. They never let them know. Yeah. And, that's... Well, communication back in those days isn't like it is now. Yeah. So it, it, nowadays, communication is like a minute. 
in, anywhere in the world. Back, back then, it might take two or three days. Yeah. Yeah, so, but we all survived. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, so now when uh, Vern gets back into town, and uh, he wants to start training camp. Mm-hmm. And did I tell you anything about the tra- uh, training no, camp? No, let's, let's talk about the training camp. That's what I want to get into next, if we can. Okay. So now, uh, I'm uh, at that time. Is I still living there? Yeah. Or no. Uh, Rick had gotten married that summer. Before okay. I was to Munich, that's what it was. I, I I was in the wedding. And so when uh, Greg and I got back, we were talking to his dad and uh, Vern. And so Vern says, okay, have you guys talked to all these other guys? And I said, yeah, we got everybody lined up. So there was Greg and Jumpin' Jimmy Brunzel, uh-huh. Rick Flair and me. Uh, Cosro Vasiri, who's known as Iron Sheik, mm-hmm. yeah, is he, actually from Iran. He was on the '68 Olympic team for Iran, and uh, oh, okay, a, yeah, 181 pound Greco-Roman wrestler. Oh, okay, yeah, and uh, then uh, there was one other guy, Bob Bruggers, mm-hmm. and Bob Bruggers was uh all state and four different sports in Minnesota. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was a hell of an athlete. He was all American at the University of Minnesota, linebacker. And uh, he wound up playing for the Miami Dolphins. Oh. Uh, he's outside linebacker. And Wahoo McDaniel was at the uh, 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 Miami Dolphins at that at the same time. So they, they became good friends. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, so anyway, uh, Billy Robinson was in Japan, uh-huh. and so he that when we started camp, but he got back the next day. So when he got back, he was uh, our coach. Okay. Yeah, because Vern, he was doing. Vern was playing tennis and. Uh, you know, running the wrestling office and everything. He, he, had, he had a lot of responsibilities. But right. He wanted to get that wrestling camp up and going. Yeah. Yeah. So we we had a hell of a class. I mean, everybody in that class was a legitimate main eventer. Yeah. You know, yeah. Except, except for Bob Bruggers. He was uh, – he wasn't uh, – you know, cut out to be a wrestler. He he just didn't like it. Yeah. And, but he, he stayed in it five or six years, I believe. Okay. Yeah, he's he really a nice guy. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, we started training camp mm-hmm. out at one of Vern's farms. Vern had a couple farms out on the western uh, uh, part of uh, Minneapolis. Okay. About, I don't know. 15, 20, maybe 20 miles, I think, uh-huh. west of Minneapolis, uh, the downtown. So anyway, we're all excited to get going, you know. And, uh, so Billy shows up 
Okay, you guys in shape? <laughs> and uh, I had met uh, Billy uh, about a year prior to that. And uh, so, yeah, we all say, yeah, we're all ready to go. Well, he starts us off with like 500 squats. Oh, my gosh. And my knee is still screwed up from the, you know, the Olympics. Yeah. But I, I said, well, what the hell? I'm not using any weights anymore. So, you know, so I, thought I was able to get through it pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then we did all these other calisthenics. And then we'd get in the ring. We'd uh, uh, practice tying up practice putting uh, headlocks on one another, working uh, top arm bars, uh, all, all kinds of stuff, uh-huh. you know, te- technical stuff that you need to have to have a wrestling match. Right. And so we'd all practice that for like two, three hours at a time. Oh. Of course, this is after doing sit-ups and push-ups and everything that, that uh, they showed us how to run, you know, hit the ropes and come off the ropes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the toughest. <laughs> that was one of the toughest parts. By hitting those ropes, you don't know how to hit them properly. And that just tear the skin right off your side. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so, it, and every one of us had the same problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were all suffering. And uh, anyway, uh, uh, like, you know, we, we go through all these routines. We, you know, slam each other. Mm-hmm. Now there's six of us. So, you know, the group lines up in front of me. There's five of them and one of me. Mm-hmm. I'd slam them all. Then we'd switch. Then Ric Flair would slam us all. And then Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, Iron Sheik, Bob Brothers. We mm-hmm. all took turns body slamming each other. Well, we go around like five times. <laughs> that, that'd take like a half an hour to 40 minutes. Yeah. And so then we'd do backdrops. We'd do suplexes. We'd do uh, beals out of the corner. Yeah. Uh, 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 top wrist locks, uh, not figure fours, but you know, the ankle uh, uh, holds and stuff, and wrist mm-hmm. wrist holds. Yeah, type of holds that you, you break somebody's arm or break somebody's ankle. Right. You know, they, they they weren't. Uh, that's if you apply the pressure, but we we never applied the pressure to one another. Right. Just a little bit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just to see if this shit really works. It works. It works. It works. Please join us for part two of our conversation with the world's strongest man, Ken Patera. Also, please check out our Facebook page. We also have a Teespring store on our Shop Now button on the Facebook page. Please check that out as well. And thanks for listening.